2: Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is Joe Healy. And Joe and I are here on one of our uh, rewatch episodes, uh, and we are going to talk about the 2000 Louisiana Lafayette Cajuns, as they were known then. Today, they are just the uh, Louisiana Ragin' Cajuns. Uh, this episode is part of our series where we go back and rewatch classic uh, games from college baseball history. But we're going to take a little bit of a different spin on this. And instead of really, like, bearing down on this particular game, we kind of want to talk more about this Cajuns team, kind of what they represent, uh, both in college baseball and in terms of uh, Louisiana history just breaking through as, as a program. Uh, but we'll, uh, we'll be doing that with uh, Raging Cajun's assistant, Anthony Babineau. He will join us here in a few minutes. But before then, Joe, I, uh, I have to check in with you and, and, and see how you, are, how you are doing. It is a rainy day as we record this uh, in Durham, North Carolina. And this is supposed to be uh, conference tournament week. We're, we're supposed to be just a few days away from Selection Monday. Instead, here we are. Uh, looking back uh, on the twentieth anniversary of this uh, this raging Cajun
0: steam, yeah, I did think about that earlier today. That granted, the ACC tournament was going to be in Charlotte this year, not in Durham. But I, I had a, a thought to what it would have been like if it had rained as much as it is going to this week. So today is is Wednesday as we record. Thursday is actually supposed to rain a little harder, uh, but it rained pretty much. It has rained pretty much all day today, off and on, kind of a steady rain. Yesterday rained pretty much all day and then tomorrow will as well and I just I had a thought to you know how how much of a mess that might have been um, had they still been having the ACC tournament in Durham and because it's not so much that it's been lightning so that the lightning would not have been an issue but but as we know you can, you can play with it raining, but but typically teams don't like to start games while it's raining. They typically like to wait for a little bit of a window and maybe a conference tournament situation where you, you have to get those games in somehow changes the calculus a little bit. But I have to imagine it would not have been necessarily a fun time to be trying to squeeze conference tournament games in. And I mean, that's just kind of the way it goes this time of year, though. You know, it's it's the springtime for everybody. And you know, in, in places in the south, that means that the humidity, which which causes some of these thunderstorms, in the Midwest, it means that it's the rainy season. So nobody's really immune from it, and um, as a result, somebody in conference tournament week is always getting hosed in terms of the weather. On a, on a different note, because this really is—I mean, it's been a well, beautiful I, spring. Like I want to—I
2: want to point out though that um, you know you're talking about just windows and everything, but it rained. Tuesday. It's now Wednesday. It's raining, and you're telling me it's supposed to rain again tomorrow. Like at some point, the field just takes on too much water. Like that—that that becomes more of a concern than windows or anything. Just, you know, the, the these games. Yes, they're happening in really good AAA stadiums, but it it can, it can only take so much abuse ultimately.
0: I mean, that's a good point. DBAP is, uh, is, is grass. Is that correct? Natural? natural Yeah. So I guess minor league facilities typically are versus, versus college. So yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, it rains all day tomorrow and suddenly you've got kind of a mess on your hands. Maybe they would have ended up having to shorten the, shorten the, the the bracket somehow. And and I I don't know, they did, they still do pool play in ACC. So I don't know how that would have worked out, but, but alas, we'll never, we'll never find out, I suppose. Um, On a different note, because like I mentioned last time, it's been like a really, really beautiful spring at least the last few weeks here and this rain has been a little bit different this is these are the first days i can remember in a, in a while where it's rained all day we've had days where it's rained and then kind of gone away and in the afternoon it, it the clouds open up a little bit but this is a, these the first days in a while i can remember it really raining and i woke up a couple of days ago i don't know if you've you're a little bit younger than me so i don't know if you've hit this part of becoming an old person yet but i kind of woke up in the middle of the night the other night and my knee hurt And was like, man, something is going on. And like, sure enough, that rain the next day, like those weather, those pressure changes are starting to get to my body. I used to laugh at like my, my mom, when she talked about her joints hurting, whenever the pressure in the air changed. And I used to think that was just, yeah, I don't know what I thought it was, but I thought she was making it up. But lo and behold, here I am at the, the relatively young age of 32 years old. And my, my knees start hurting me a little bit whenever the pressure changes outside.
2: Yeah, I, c- I cannot say I've uh, I've hit on that, or at least that I've noticed that that that's happening yet. So I mean, I am uh, nursing that. I've kind of got
0: this like nagging knee injury, which is probably like exacerbating the problem. But but it was definitely already happening a little bit. You could just you feel the differences in pressure and and certainly that uh, has been the case this week. We went from 90 degrees 90 degrees on Saturday, essentially 90 and sunny to you know now it's I don't know like 55 degrees outside and you can't see the sun and it's been drizzling all day.
2: This actually reminds me of the uh, SEC tournament a few years ago. I don't remember precisely what year it was. I guess it was Own's first year at Kentucky, so 2017. It's a it's a great way to remember things. Um, <laughs> but you know, it was it was weirdly cold and rainy, and the ball was flying out of Hoover, which traditionally is more of a pitcher's park, and everyone was trying to figure it out and uh, like why that was happening and of the theories posited was, well, it's a lot colder than it usually is, so maybe that's why. Um, but anyway, yeah, you never, you never know what you're going to get conference tournament week. And, of course, uh, this year, conference tournament week, uh, we, we get nothing. That, that's what we get. So what we do instead is we, uh, we look back 20 years, and we talk about the Louisiana Lafayette Raging Cajuns. Now, Joe, you picked this game. It's an Omaha game between the Cajuns and San Jose State. Uh, taking place there, there in the 2000 College World Series, and you know while we're not going to hammer through some of the details of this game, I did want to kind of let you explain why we, uh, why why we're looking back on on this game, and then kind of the Cajuns more broadly.
0: There's a couple reasons I put it on the list initially, and and by the way, if you listen to our last episode when we teased this game. I talked about I don't even know if it's a good game. Turns out, pretty good game. Like I enjoyed it. Uh, it's relatively low scoring, at least as far as some Omaha games at Rosenblatt could, could be, and but they're relatively well pitched, and it moved pretty quick. But there was still you know a couple balls get out of the yard, and you got some some runners on base, and so it, it really was kind of a fun game. I I I don't don't know what I was expecting exactly, but but it was a lot of fun to watch. And so we chose this game for a couple of reasons. One is that it, it's just rare in the history of the college world series that you have two true underdog stories. And I, I, I've used the term Cinderella before, but maybe that sells what ULL at the time was, was accomplishing. They were really good in 99 and, and coach Babino talks about that, you know, how good they were in 99 versus two, you know, as a, as a lead into 2000, but they were two underdog teams at that point. And so that, that's kind of interesting. There are also two teams that kind of came at things different ways I mean this was at least on the ULL side this really was the culmination of something that had been building there under Tony Robichaud for a while and they get to the precipice of it in 99 and then get over the hump in 2000 and then we would see as time went on you know the continued fruits of that whether it was you know they just they really turn into a consistent regional team you know they're in regionals every other year every third year they peak again in you know 2014 in particular but really that range of 13 14 15 they're really peaking again um so this was really the the big crowning achievement of what had been a larger program build for ULL and there's a discussion we had about you know being able to pull something that often like that off in modern college baseball and then you had San Jose State which was really um coming at it from the a different standpoint of them really being the true Cinderella um they had been a solid program under under Sam Perraro, who was their their head coach at that time, but they had really accomplished nothing like this to that point. They they'd really had some, some nice individual seasons, but, but no postseason. And then boom, they get into the CWS in 2000. Now I did sell them a little bit short. I think on the last episode, I talked about how, you know, they really didn't do anything like this again, um, or, or, or before. And I know I looked again and actually they get to a super regional in 02, which I had just kind of forgotten. So this really was maybe the beginning of a, a really short window for San Jose State to get something like this done. But after that 0 02 Super Regional, um, they don't go to the postseason again under Carrara. And so it really is a very brief snippet in time of when San Jose State has this like supernova moment where they, they get to Omaha and then two years later they host and win 45 games. And um, so they are kind of your more true, I would say, Stony Brook type of Cinderella in Omaha. And so it's not just rare that you have these individual, I mean, how often does a team of San Jose State's caliber get to Omaha? And then furthermore, how often, and the answer is not, not often at all, do two teams like ULL and San Jose State end up playing in the college world series. So I, I really enjoyed this game, even without having seen it and without knowing much about it, I kind of blindly put it on the list just because I think this is such a rare bird of a game in CWS history. It ends up being a window into the best moment in the history of San Jose State baseball. And I guess arguably the best moment, actually almost inarguably the best moment in ULL baseball history. Although I think what makes that different is the idea that ULL could conceivably do this again. Life has gotten harder in doing that in the Sunbelt conference, but they could conceivably do it again. And they came close on a couple of other occasions. So it's a little bit different in that regard, but it's just such a wonderful snapshot of the best moments in the history of these two programs that came at this from different directions. And since then have kind of gone in different directions. So a lot going on here. And then on top of it, it was a really nice surprise that it turns out to be kind of a fun game.
2: So the, you know, Joe mentions there like just how rare it is the two programs like this meet. And, you know, Joe said that on the last podcast, and he's probably told me that offline too. And I've just kind of been like, yeah, I mean, I guess, is probably pretty rare, but like, is it really that rare? And, uh, as someone that just looked through the, through the last 40 years of college world series matchups, uh, it is that rare. Basically the only there, this is kind of stands alone in, in the rarity. Um, there are times where programs like Wichita state, Fresno state and rice have played each other. Those are all like real things that, that happened. Um, or like Irvine played Fullerton in 2007. And so there are these games uh, w- between teams outside the, the large power structure of college baseball hierarchy. But, you know, those teams that I just mentioned, they're not, you know, for the most part you know, in, in these games, they're not first timers for the most part, at least not both teams. Most of the time, the teams that I'm talking about already had a national title by the time they're they're playing these these games. Uh, some of that is helped by the fact that Fullerton has had national titles for 50 years now or whatever. Um, but to have two teams in their first time as you know that that were at least at the time as far removed from the the power structure as these two teams kind of were, uh basically it it, it never happens. Since the, the tournament has stopped being, you know, the, the pure regional um, format that, that sent Maine to the College World Series in northern Colorado. And, um, you know, once they changed the format in the mid 80s to, to stop the true regionals, um, you know, we really haven't seen anything like that. And except for this instance. And so it it is a a really special game from that standpoint. And Joe and I are going to, going to get into that a a little more uh, after we uh, speak with, uh, with Anthony Babineau about this team. But, you know, I also think that the, the, the Cajuns as a whole, uh, you know, this, this is just a a team that gets referenced a lot in college baseball history, I feel like. And uh, you know, it's a, some of that is, is uh, you know, just because of how, how far they go in Omaha. It's not just that they show up and win a game or go 0-2 and go home, but no, they, they were very competitive out there, and um, you know, they really did seem to capture a lot of hearts and minds of college baseball fans in a way that those around college baseball continue to talk about them, and I, I do think part of it is also just how much people in college baseball respected Tony show. And liked him, and of course, uh, unfortunately, uh passed away last July um, after uh, you know, complications um, you know, from uh, a heart attack. And you know, he uh, he had a lot to do with uh, you know with he, he built this program. People, just so many people. Uh, you know, had amazing things to say about Tony Robichaux, and a lot of them weren't really related to baseball, though he was a great baseball coach who won more than a 1,000 games uh, throughout his career at McNeese and, and ULL. But it, it was a lot about the way he impacted people away from the diamond as well. So I think all of those things come together to kind of create this, um, you know, the, the aura around this, this two thousand. Uh, Raging Cajuns team that that did so well and and uh, broke through uh, to the College World Series. So with that, let's talk to assistant coach Anthony Babineau. Today on the Baseball America College Podcast, we are very excited to be joined by Louisiana assistant coach Anthony Babineau. Coach, it's a uh, it's a. Weird time. It's a weird spring in college baseball, but, you know, how are you kind of, uh, you know, just managing this this baseball spring at this point?
1: Well, you're absolutely correct. It definitely is a weird time and and a weird spring. Never have any of us ever had one like this, you know, so we're trying to manage as best we can. The season got cranked up, and for us, we played 17 games and had won. got We got off to a little bit of a slow start, but had won six of our last seven, so we were really playing consistent baseball, coming around, kind of finding ourselves as a team, and then everything got cut. It came to a screeching halt. So that was really, for a lack of better words, devastating in a sense because. You know, you, you're a competitor, you're used to competing, especially this time of the year for us, and our sport, and then all of a sudden you can't. And then next thing you know, you're at home and can't go into work. And then next thing you know, you're having to communicate to your players via text and not face-to-face, and then you're having Zoom meetings, and then all of a sudden you start planning for 2021 in the middle of the spring of 20. So that's definitely something different. But we, we've gotten through it, just like I, I suspect every other program has. We, we've gotten through the semester. Our guys really finished up great in the classroom, finished with a team GPA of 3-4 for this semester, which was, which was a record for our program for a semester. So the guys really buckled down and did what they needed to do in the classroom. We had exit meetings with our guys via Zoom and, and to this point have have sort of put together our team for next year or for this fall at least and are just looking forward to the fall. We we hope and pray each day that that we can't have a fall and we can get back at this come August the end, end of August. So you know that's kind of where we we have our sights set right now.
2: Well, let's take the trip down memory lane to uh, some happier times in in Cajun baseball history. Uh, let's let's get to that two thousand team. You know that team was a breakthrough team, reaching the College World Series, of course. Uh, but in a lot of ways, the, the stage for that was kind of set by the 1999 team and, and all that they accomplished. What, um, what did that experience, you know, playing Rice in, in a Super Regional and, and, and falling a little bit short of, of getting to the World Series, what did that bring? Uh, what did the guys learn uh, that they were able to carry over into 2000?
1: Well, that 99 season, no doubt, fueled our fire for 2000. We got really, really close in 99, and to be honest with you, myself included, and I was too young and and naive in my career to be able to process and understand otherwise. After that first win on Friday night against Rice, no way did I or or many of our players think that we were not going to Omaha. Even though we had never been there before and, and knew how tough it was to get there, we just felt that our chances to win one game out of the next two, it was just – it was a done deal. We were going to get there. Unfortunately, they took the next two from us, and, and they advanced, and we didn't. But, you know, one thing that that did teach us was it's never over till it's over uh, for sure. And, you know, that we returned that entire team in 2000. We, we had one addition position player-wise to the outfield that really bolstered our, our offense – even more added a couple of arms but for the most part the entire team came back so it wasn't as if we had to train new players so to speak on our uh, our history or uh, you know our philosophy or where we were headed everyone was headed in the same direction and after that 99 season at our postseason banquet one of the local tv stations their sports director had put together a video uh, of the entire season a really really well done and and the last image in that video was a picture of Rosenblatt Stadium and the caption was Omaha 2000 and I know for me and many of the players like that was the beginning of our journey towards Omaha and there was going to be no denying us so As you mentioned, you know, with the start of this question, that 99 really catapulted us into 2000, same group of guys, same mentality, even a more fierce mentality, a a stronger desire to get there because we came so short in 99. And, and, you know, fortunately for us, the season went as planned not without some some setbacks, you know, nine-game losing streak, I believe, in, in the middle of that season. But we're able to rebound from that and really do what we needed to do, you know, to punch our ticket all the way through, as tough as it was, getting through South Carolina and the team that they had, 56-5, and 5, I believe, going into the Super Regional. I can still vividly remember the the, the killer bees, the three Bs that they had on the, on the mound, Bauer, Bulk Knight, and I forget the last B, but I know his name started with a B and, and just tremendous arms and a tremendous team and losing Friday night. But, you know, the thing about losing that Friday night, our game one in that Super at South Carolina, we sort of knew how to handle that because, you know, the prior year we had seen the way Rice handled it. So we knew it could be done. We had seen it done. And fortunately we were able to to manage the situation and and punch our ticket and and make that historic trip.
0: I don't want to sidetrack us too much this early on, but as someone who grew up in Houston, I'd love to know that that 99 Super Regional was played in the Astrodome. And I'd be curious to know how bizarre that kind of was to be playing college baseball in that building. I can imagine the ping in the bat probably
1: echoed for hours afterwards,
0: just given how big
1: that place was. Well, it did, you know, and at that time, you know, nowadays we play, as do other programs play in pro parks all the time with tournaments that pro parks put on and especially a lot of the minor league facilities that, that host tournaments, you know, you do it all the time. So it's kind of like second nature now, but back then, you know twenty years ago, you you weren't playing in Pro Parks a lot. So you know it was a huge deal for us, especially here in in Louisiana, in Lafayette, South Louisiana, we obviously have the hometown New Orleans Saints football, but for pro baseball, you know it's it's the Astros for us. Houston is the closest franchise to us. So uh, a lot of a lot of our players, coaches grew up watching, listening to the Astros going to some of the Astros games in the in the Astrodome. And a lot of our team was from Texas, in particular the Houston area. So that was a, a big deal for those guys as well. So just to get the opportunity to, to play there. And I think that you know kind of maybe helped and made us feel a little bit more comfortable at being there in a pro park, even though we hadn't had a lot of experiences with playing in, in professional stadiums. The fact that we had all been inside the Astrodome, you know, whether it be for watching an Astros game or for probably a lot of the Houston guys, because we had a lot of Cowboys on that team going to the, the, the rodeo, you know, inside the Astrodome. So it was a, um, um, somewhat of a familiar setting for us, but, you know, it definitely was different because, you know, all of our games were for the most part in outside venues. And then you get inside and, you know, especially with the, the, the roof and the ceiling and, and tracking the balls. It was, it was definitely different. So then fast forward to 2000, you
0: end up hosting a regional that year as a, as a two seed. What do you remember about that atmosphere? I have to imagine, given, you know, how much excitement there was about this season potentially being a breakthrough. I have to imagine that weekend was pretty crazy in Lafayette. Yeah,
1: it surely was, you know, we didn't, back then they didn't announce the host sites as early as they do now. So we kind of sweated out all the way to the end. You know, I think a third or a little bit before halfway of the season is, is when we got up to, to number four in the ranking, we were 30 and four, I believe at one point and just really cruising along. I mean, we had beaten some good teams. We sw- swept Oklahoma at home. We swept another P five school, I believe at, at home or, or on the road, just, just really just knocking out everybody. And, and then we go on that, that, mid-season, eight or nine game losing streak. It began at FIU. They were in our, our conference back then. Uh, we, we, I think we won Friday night and lost Saturday, Sunday. And then from there, we went to a, a Tuesday, Wednesday at Wichita State, midweek series, dropped both of those games. On the way back down, stopped at Little Rock for a conference series, got swept by them. So, you know, we went through that, that struggle. And then, obviously, our, our ranking kind of – fell uh some after that stretch so we had to do some work to kind of get back up into the conversation and in the year we were we were kind of back into that conversation as far as being a host and then the last weekend of the season we hosted UNO at home and we had one game to win to clinch a conference championship and they swept us at home and we were just totally devastated I can still see the pictures that came out in the newspaper that after that weekend series, you know, guys with their head in their hands. I think the the headline was something like dejected or or rejected or something like that. And, and, you know, so we dropped those last three at the end of the season. And obviously, as you guys know, the committee takes a look at your last 10 and how you finish up. Well, we went to the conference tournament. I think we lost the first game. Then we won the next three. Then we lost uh, that following game to eliminate us before the championship and we came back home and and we knew we were going to be in a regional obviously but we didn't know if we were going to host and and we all gathered in in our athletic director's office uh, for that selection show that process and and had had it on speakerphone and and you know we were the last site that was announced And, and i can remember you know myself I can remember the look on Coach Robichaux's face and and him and the athletic director embraced because that was our first, the first time that we would get to host a regional and, and we had put in so much work and gotten so many commitments from the community to help with some upgrades to the ballpark in preparation to be able to host a regional. So just overjoyed for the entire community, the school, the athletic department, and our, our, obviously our team. And, you know, I really think that it's well-documented even to this day that the teams that host are the teams that advance. You obviously have some a lot of teams that advance, and we've done it from, from other regional sites, not our own. But the majority of teams that advance are the host, and, and that held true that year, even though we we had a tremendous East Carolina team that came in That season, Uh, a lot of those guys, obviously, I didn't know who they were then, but I sure know who they are now because I think eight of those nine everyday players went on to become coaches and all guys that I'm friends with today as we all kind of came through the coaching ranks. So um, even though we had that stiff competition, the fact that we were at home and had sold out crowds and had the excitement and the atmosphere that, that our stadium and our town and our is so well known for that was able to help us get through that regional and, and move on into the supers.
2: So one of the, if you go back and look at a lot of images or if you see any video from that world series team, the, the guys are almost all blonde. When, yeah. uh, when did they go ahead and, and decide that they were going to, you know, join up in, in, in a show of team unity and, and uh, dye their hair blonde?
1: Well, that actually started, you know, just like this run started with the 99 team. uh, The hair started with the 99 team as well. They did that towards the end of the season. We all had blonde hair at the um, – I don't know. I don't think we had it. You know, that year we were in the Houston regional and won that regional in Houston. I don't think we had the blonde hair then, but I think the next week before we went to – well, back to Houston for the Supers – is when guys started to dye uh, dye their hair. And and I think while we were there, before the first game, uh, the last couple of guys that were resisting did it. Uh, Coach Robichaud even did it. So the hair started before the 2000 season with the 99 team. And obviously once we got into postseason for 2000, you know, it came back. So that was started started prior to 2000.
0: I'm curious a little bit about um, that the way the South Carolina super regional ends, there was an article Luke Johnson of the advocate did uh, a few years back, five years ago or so where, where you know, he talked to you about it and, and you mentioned that you were able to, that, that's a crystal clear memory for you to that day. And I'm curious, um, how, if you ever had a memory similar to that in terms of, you know, being able to remember something so clearly, or if that stands alone as the type of memory in your, in your baseball life, um, that you can remember in that way.
1: Well, as far as in my baseball life, you know, that definitely is one of the best memories. You know, I I, I remember a little bit the, the the interview with Luke that you mentioned and you know I'm fairly certain that that I said that the memory of that ground ball going into Scott Atwood, our first baseman's glove. And I remember when he caught the ball, to me, he appeared too far off the bag to run and tag the bag for the final out. In my mind, I was thinking, we still got to make a clean exchange between Scott and the pitcher. So I remember just thinking, clean exchange, please, clean exchange, clean exchange, and we have got this done. And then as Scott's going towards the bag, you know, he puts his glove up to the pitcher to signal that I've got it. And when he put that glove up, you know, I just knew that that he was going to get to the bag before the runner and that we had accomplished this goal. Yeah, I, I can see that as if it was yesterday. I really can. And this then just the embrace that myself and, and Coach Robichaud, Coach Semino, Coach Gonzalez, just all of our staff, I, everyone just, it was, it was complete euphoria, so to speak, it really was. So, you know, that image is, is that whole weekend though, I mean, if we had enough time, I, I could go through that whole weekend from game one, game two, game three, everything that happened, everything that happened pre-game, post-game, I really can. You know, you have certain memories that stick out for you. You know, that, that memory was certainly one, just, just yesterday I was on with someone here locally to speak about our 2014 team. And for the most part, that entire season I can remember as it played out. You know, we can all we all have things that get etched in our in our memory from special times. You know, and for us for baseball special seasons, you know, I was asked what I was asked if I can remember throughout my whole twenty-five year career all of the teams and how seasons played out and what was the toughest to to remember. And you know, for each season I can pretty much remember things from each season and when you have special teams or special seasons like 2000, 2014, you can really remember a little bit more because things stand out. You know, the toughest thing for me to remember is I can remember all the players, but some of the years that they played, you know, is a little bit tough for me to Kind of remember just because there's been so many, but you take special years like 2000, 2014, and if you say a player's name, you know I can definitely say, oh, he was on the 2000 team. He was on the 2014 team. So, so yes, that that memory of of South Carolina that weekend, I remember what I did after going back to the hotel. I can I can tell you who I called to let them know that we got it done. So yeah, vividly remember everything about that that exact moment. But but more more importantly that entire weekend
2: so then you get to you get to omaha and that's a city that you know over the years has has been known to embrace an underdog did you guys feel that while you were there or you know just what what were your experiences with just the the city of omaha and and being a part of uh you know the, the special atmosphere that is the college world series
1: well we definitely could feel um Uh, the way the community Omaha embraced not just the underdog, but, but every team and, and we were the underdog, you know, us in San Jose state that year with two first time programs to the college world series. So we could definitely feel that our, our memorabilia, I believe that was on sale, at all, the, at all the souvenir shops just went flying off the racks. Uh, they, they couldn't get it in fast enough. And I believe at one point got to where there, there were no more that they had to sell. So it was, but as far as that experience, I remember when we came back and people asking me about it, I would tell them that whatever you see on TV, I know you watch it on TV every year, whatever you see on TV being there is a hundred times better it really is because you, you just become immersed in, in everything that that is Omaha and you know our guys really embraced it uh dropped a tough one to Stanford by a couple of runs that, that first day and then you know came back and had a great game against San Jose State uh and then had that thriller uh, walk-off win on the on the on the push bunt that, that got thrown away against Clemson the next day, and then got off to a really, really great start against Stanford the next day, uh, come out to a 6 nothing lead, and, and just thought that, hey, we're going to get this done and have another chance at him and if we get that done, then we're in the championship, which if things would have played out the same, would have been against LSU, who was in the other bracket, which that would have been just a, a, a complete, um, I don't even know the word, just a joy uh, to be able to to, to play those guys, a team that, you know, we play every year in the regular season, but to, to play a, a school of that caliber with the tradition and history that they have, what it would mean for our program, their program, the state of Louisiana, that would have been tremendous. But, you know, uh, we, we performed when we were there, you know, we had guys that were, that were tough, both mentally and physically, and, and they rose up to any challenge that we had. You know, I mentioned yesterday with our 2014 team and it, and it, stands true with 2000 there are many parallels between those two teams on both of those teams any night out we had seven or eight professionals on the field now not obviously big league professionals but we had guys that had an opportunity to play professional baseball to, to pay to play for a paycheck so when you have you know eight or nine guys out on the field that, that are professionals. You're going to do better than most. Now, obviously, when you get to the College World Series, every team has eight or nine professionals for the most part. Uh, so you're you're kind of evenly matched. But we had guys that, that just love to compete, love to have fun with each other. We're totally bought into what, as a program, we were trying to accomplish. And, and it showed in our play. And, you know, we were there for 10 days. It felt like a month. Uh, but the way that they space out your games, where you play every other day, we were there for 10 full, day, ten full days and, and really, you know, in my opinion, got, got the most out of our experience.
0: I think it's safe to say this team is remembered extremely fondly, not just locally by folks in, in Lafayette and in Louisiana, but I think among college, people who follow college baseball closely, fondly remember this 2000 Cajuns team. And I'm curious why you think that group of guys really captured everyone's imagination in the way that they did.
1: Well, number one, I think it was it was their style of play. We played a fun brand of baseball. We had power. We had pitching. We could run. We could bunt. We we, we could defend. We did a lot of things well. And and I think once we got to the big stage, um, to Omaha, it was documented through Omaha that we had to get through South Carolina, which was the talk of the town that entire season, so to speak, with, with the players that they had, the way that they just rolled through the regular season. And people knew that we got through that gauntlet, so to speak, to get to Omaha and then playing well in Omaha. And then we had the dyed hair, um, the walk-off against Clemson, the way we did it. We stole home one game, you know, which, which you know, other teams were stealing home, but not a lot of teams are stealing home in in Omaha, you know, and, and, and we did that. So I think we just captured uh, the hearts of a lot of Americans and, and uh, uh, a lot of people found out about, the Raging Cajun baseball program; those two weeks uh, during the College World Series, and I think that they have sort of followed through. I know that there was um, there was this one young man that one game I caught a foul ball. I was you know in the first base coaching box, and I caught a, a slow roller foul ball that came right to me, and I kind of just put it in my pocket and waited till the next inning to. to give it to someone and and uh, so I come out for the next inning and just kind of walked over back behind the first base box and there was this little kid that was there that I kind of just picked out and I gave it to him and I got back that summer and and got a really nice letter from both the kid and his mom and said how much it meant to the kid that that I walked over and you know signed the ball and gave it to him and, and stayed in contact with that kid and that family for you know another four or five years after that so you know I think just those things just – those things mean, th- mean something to people. You know, when, when you do things like that, they mean, mean something to people. They remember you. And, and just the things that we were able to accomplish that season, I think it excited people and, and got people interested in, in what we were doing.
2: You're talking there about the style of play that that, that team had. But I, I find that to kind of hold true throughout the course of, you know, at least the best – Uh, Cajuns teams is that something that coach Robichaud kind of um, you know put in these guys or is that just you know kind of the way that um, you know the the style of play is down down in Lafayette like what where, where do you think that that has come from over the years?
1: Well I think it's a little bit of both you know Tony definitely did his best to instill that into his players, you know, and we tried to recruit those type of players because we knew that's how we wanted to play. you know we we knew that year in and year out, we were not going to get the blue chippers, so to speak, you know, that a lot of the 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 what are what is termed the p five programs now get. You now we we would get one from time to time, but for the most part, we were we were a program. That had to develop. Um, we had to take good players. We had to take players that were that we thought were tough, and develop their skill, whether it be on the mound, in the field, or in the batter's box. And, and that was something that Tony, throughout his twenty-five years at at UL, constantly talked about. You know, he, he affectionately referred to it as throwdown. You know, he, he wanted us. He wanted our, our mantra to be throwdown. down. Whenever we walked into a stadium, he wanted the other team to, to have the mindset that, you know, we're going to have to strap it on tonight if we're going to have any chance to beat these guys because they're going to get after it from innings one through inning nine. So, so definitely Tony did his best to try to put that into the guys. And, and that just kind of became our staple throughout the years. It really did. We tried to recruit players that, that had a little bit of power, uh, that had had some speed because we we you know stealing bases obviously you know first base is is really not scoring position but once you get to second the the, the whole story changes so you know we 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 like to run and and that was really that was tony tony was a tough guy he really was you know to to a lot of people in the public obviously tony was a very well spoken well-mannered Polite Christian man, uh, but behind the lines, uh, behind the scenes, he could get after you. He really could. He did it in the right way. He did it in a respectful way, but there was no back down in him. Uh, he was just a tough dude, man. He he really was. And and uh, you know that style of play, all, all of those teams throughout the year, years, they were really just a mirror image of him. In hindsight, how important is it to, or
0: how meaningful is it? I should say. To have this College World Series experience as a way to kind of celebrate what Coach Robichaud built in Lafayette, and to have it as this kind of crowning achievement of of all of his work that he put in the program.
1: Oh man, I, I think it's it's tremendous. Uh, I really do. You know the fact that 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 he was able to take his team. You know he said all he said this at the post post game interview in '99 after the Super Region with Rice, you know, he said that so many people throughout the years, and it's true, because I was with him for every step of the way. So many people throughout the years have invited him to Omaha, and he would always tell them that's okay, you know, I'm going to go with my team one day. And we were able to make that come true. You know, he was able to take his team, and not just take his team and, and be happy to be there, but to take his team, play four games, win two of them, capture the hearts of 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 college baseball. So I think that really cements his legacy. Uh, You know, his legacy would have been the same, in my opinion, no doubt, even if we would have had that college world series appearance, just because of the the impact he had on on so many, so many lives, uh, both, both young and old. But the fact that we did have the success that we had with the super regional appearances and, and the college world series appearance and the, number one ranking and and hosting regionals uh, you know the things that go along with great seasons uh, i'm really glad that that he was able to put that on his resume Uh, i really am
2: well coach we're uh we're glad that we were able to, to take this trip down memory lane it's uh it's a fun team to to remember and to talk about like we said it's it's fun to you know look back and especially during a spring where we have no baseball and it's always a good time to remember what coach Robichaux meant not only to that program, but, but to college baseball in general. So we really appreciate you uh, you taking the time to talk about all of that with us today.
1: Absolutely. It's, it's been my pleasure. You know, as you, as you mentioned, and we started talking earlier, it's, it's a tough time right now with this pandemic and and there's not a lot of certainty as to what's going to, what's going to come. Uh, But hopefully, this thing can get under control a little bit and we can get back out there in the fall and, and have some more baseball. Although we all believe it's going to look a little different, uh, how different we, we still have no idea, but, but no doubt, probably will look a little different, but anytime that I can reminisce about, about our program and, and, you know, I, I've certainly certainly been blessed these last 25 years to have spent it here alongside a, a man of, of great character and, and, um, the coach and the person that Tony Robichaux was—it's was such a tragic, tragic end to his life last last summer. It really was, and and but I feel honored and blessed, as I said, to have spent 25 years of my life right alongside of him and and everything that he did and meant to this program. So it's been my pleasure to speak to you guys today. I really appreciate you having me on.
2: Thank you again to coach Babineau for joining us today on the baseball America college podcast, Joe, that was a, uh, that was a lot of fun to take that trip down memory lane. And uh, you know, he, he just has so much, you know, in his head about this team. It's, it's kind of incredible that, you know, the stuff he can recall and, you know, how much, you know, the, the, the way that the program was building and and, and all of these things that went into uh, making the, this team 20 years ago that, that ultimately becomes, uh, you know, this breakthrough team for the Cajuns and, and one of the the best teams in, in program history.
0: Yeah. Folks like him are, are really rare. And, and by that, I mean, he, he, he really is, you know, a true historian of this program because he was with Tony Robichaux largely from the beginning uh, of when, uh, Coach Rowe was, was building this thing up. And, um, you know, especially now in college baseball and, and, and head coaches understand this and they support it. You know, assistants move on to go become head coaches and, and some on the staff did. Wade Simino is actually in this game. They show, you know, Wade Simino coaching third base. And, you know, he goes on to be the head coach at Louisiana Tech, for example. There are other examples that have, have been on the staff, but, um, you know, he's been there through all of it. And that's fairly rare to have someone like that who can speak as cogently about the entire modern history of this program, the same way the head coach could, because he's been there for every last bit of it. And, you know, if Matt Diggs gets this thing really rolling again, he'll be, he'll be there for that too. And he could, he could speak on, on that as well. So he's really kind of a treasure in that way to be able to, um, to be able to speak about the history of this program in that particular way, as opposed to just one particular moment in time. And, And he clearly loves talking about this, this moment in time. You could, you can really hear it in his voice there, but but he he can really give you that full picture of here's where we started, here's where we went, and here's where we're going, and that's really really rare, I think.
2: Absolutely, I mean, he's one of these assistants that has just been tied to a school for pretty much their entire career, and those guys are are rare and they are special, and you know just what he what he can speak to from you know the way that that things got built. Uh, there at, at ULL and I think he's been through Joe maybe you can confirm this for me he's been through three name changes or two name changes uh, he's been at that school under three different names right
0: yeah yeah southwestern Louisiana uh, up until 2000 so in the 99s regional they were southwestern Louisiana and then ULL and then now you know athletically going by UL, uh, the school is is still technically University of Louisiana at Lafayette but athletically they like to go by UL. there's a lot of confusion and you know about all of that but oh it's again, a whole thing it is, it is a whole thing like i was trying to dance around it but it is a whole thing um the, the folks who care a lot about you know their their team being called ul will, will make sure you know about it but yeah so southwest southwest louisiana ull and then and then ul in the, in the most recent iteration
2: yeah so i mean to have that kind of perspective you know i really appreciate it. and and it's uh it's really cool to to be able to look back on the way that the program grew, because you know, before we really dug into this team, I didn't know a ton about the '99 Super Regional. I'm sure little Joe was like at in the Astrodome, you know, watching that. But like, I, you know, if if I had remembered that they played Rice in the Astrodome in a '99 Super, that sure had slipped slipped my mind. But you know, to to see how close they were to reaching Omaha the year before. And then for them to, to rebound from what must have been a crushing defeat to, to lose the last two games of that Super and come back. And then, you know, the story of how they, they get to Omaha is, is pretty incredible because that 2000 South Carolina team is one of the best teams uh, in Ray Tanner's career, at least up until the, you know, the 2010 to 2012 group. And, you know, that, that South Carolina team is, if, if you put together a list of teams that the best teams not to make it to Omaha, 2000 South Carolina is very high on that list. And, you know, the Cajuns roll into to Columbia and, the, and they find a way to win that super. And, um, you know, then they go on to what they went on to in Omaha. So I, to, to see the growth and, uh, you know, the persistence of, of the players in that program, you know, I find to be uh, pretty impressive on top of everything else
0: yeah not not to belabor it too much but I, the idea of playing a super regional in the Astrodome is kind of wild to me even you know knowing that as as much as I've known it for forever now just that was I, I remember reading about that I was not there actually I, I was not in the Astrodome that day lifting the old uh, seats and shooing the rats and cockroaches out from under the seats to be able to sit down which I joke, but the Astrodome was showing its age at, at that point. And so, and clearly at the in 99, clearly the Astros were about to move out of, in, into Minute Maid Park. So it really was kind of at the end of its life. But the whole idea that they would play a super regional in a major league park during the season. Now, granted that was on turf. And by turf, they mean the old version of AstroTurf, which I'm sure could not have been fun to play and slide on. But yeah, the idea that they would, they would be able to do that basically while the big league club is out of town. I just, I don't, I mean, I don't think that's happened. I mean, minor league parks fairly common for a college baseball postseason, season, but um, especially in the older days before there were as many really quality college baseball facilities as there are now, but big league parks, I don't think has been done before or since really. And I, I have a hard time imagining it happening now. So it, it really is kind it of a,
2: Was a was Reckling not an option? Like when, when was Reckling not built
0: yet? I don't believe so. Like, or it wasn't what it is now, um, at at the very least. So I'm I'm guessing that was. I mean, uh, you know, Wayne Graham could can I'm sure tell us, but I, um, <laughs> yeah. So it was built in time for the 2000 season. So they just missed. So if this is a year later, you know, if this is a year later, they're having this erectling and it's not a thing. So in that way, I'm thankful just because it is such a unique piece of of history. And I wish there was. I actually have done Google searches for trying to find pictures or accounts of this and you, you'll find a gamer or two here and there but nothing really that i've found anyway in depth i'd be very interested if there's someone listening who uh, who has some of that stuff either pictures or or articles written about the experience of that i'd be really interested but there's just not a lot out there considering it is only 21 years ago different time in the world the internet and what have you but you would think there'd be more about that out there but yeah reckling not quite not quite done. I wasn't sure exactly when they'd finished Reckling, but yeah, two thousand. So they they just missed it. So we we have this weird little piece of college baseball history, thanks to Reckling Park not quite being finished.
2: Yeah, the um, you know, there's been talk at various times about putting something in Fenway. That's never happened. Um, but you know, I don't even know really where where like what what the situation would be that you would you would look at this.
1: Um, I I think
2: maybe I've looked at it, looked up like UCSB might be able to host like, but they can't host on campus. Like, where are they going to host? Like, I I may have pulled up like angels and Dodgers schedules, but like, not like actually seriously.
0: Yeah. The only time I can think that it might have been pertinent was there was one year USD hosted, um. And it was like pre-Chris Bryant. We're talking like, I, can't, I think they hosted in 07. It was O seven or 08. That sounds about right. And they did not have what is now Fowler Park. Um, and so they end up hosting at Tony Gwynn Stadium at, at San Diego State. Now, if that, if that Tony Gwynn Which Stadium – Which also bonkers. <laughs> right, yeah. Just let, let the rival come in there and play your, play your regional there. But, yeah, so they – you know, had that not been an option, like I don't know what the Padres' schedule would have been. Um, also – that park Petco would have like just been brand new. So that would have been quite, quite something, but would the Padres have allowed that on their two, three-year-old ballpark? I don't know. So again, the scenarios under which this could actually happen are just so unique because the team has to be out of town. The team has to be willing to do it. It really has to be be
2: located. It's just a small window of programs that have, you know, this being a thing, like you have to be good enough to host and be in or next to a big league city.
0: Yeah, I wonder what the backup plans were for Rice because the thing about it was, is I, Louisiana Lafayette came through the Houston regional, and Coach Babino references that that was at Cougar Field, that regional. So what they couldn't, Rice could not have even done the San Diego State plan and said, okay, like let's let's see if we can talk U of H into letting us use Cougar Field to host a potential super regional because you know the University of Houston was planning on at least being in the mix to play that super regional at home. So I would have really loved to know what the backup plan would have been had the haserdome not been available to me. I'm sure they would have they come up with something, but um, there, there were some of those options that were traditionally options or you would think would be options weren't.
2: In that moment. coming in two months of baseball america joe healy's oral history of the 1999 houston super
0: regional yeah no kidding nobody steal that idea now that we've talked it out nobody nobody steal that idea that one's too good
2: <laughs> i said it on the podcast so i think that means you cannot steal it like that's I, right. I think that's those are <laughs>
0: rules. Yeah, legally speaking you cannot steal that anymore
2: well, that's that's now it's now protected by the baseball america copyright
0: that's
1: right
2: um okay so you know when we look at the, the actual 2000 team, you know, what they so they, they came close to 99, they get there in 2000. And, and you look at what this team was like in Omaha, Joe, when, from what we saw in this game. I mean, it, it's a it's a really talented team like they, this is it, it's not fluky it's, it's not anything like they just are out there and, you know, they're competing really well in Omaha. It was a close game against Stanford, which they lost uh, to drop them into the loser's bracket to play San Jose state. They beat San Jose state. And then they play a really tight game against Clemson in an elimination game, walk them off. I, you know, everything in Omaha is, is showing that, that they, they very much deserve to be there and that they could, could hang with everyone which is no surprise because, again, they went to Columbia and knocked out number one overall seed, South Carolina.
0: Yeah, it's there's nothing fluky about it at all. But at the same time, it's also not one of those teams, and no, no great examples are coming to mind, like right away, but there are occasionally teams that get to Omaha that maybe are not your the teams at the top of mind, and you can see, oh, they were powered by this particularly strong pitching staff that has two big names, whether they were big leaguers or just high draft picks or really good college guys, or, oh, this team could really mash, or here's this one guy who who really carried the load uh, throughout the entire – this wasn't that. I mean, they've got some guys who played in the big league. The guy who starts the San Jose State game that we watched, Scott Doman, uh, has a nice career in the big leagues, and he was kind of there. One thing I wanted to ask Coach Babineau about that we, we just didn't get around to was Scott Doman is kind of this clutch pitcher. I mean, he's the guy they go to in Game 3 of the Super Regional against South Carolina. He's the guy they go to in the elimination game against San Jose State in Omaha. And interestingly, he was also the guy on the mound in Game 3, or perhaps it was Game 2, but I think it was Game 3. One of the games they lost in that 99 Super Regional against Rice, he had a chance to pitch them to Omaha, and he loses that game. And so I read in the story that we talked about with Luke Johnson, who wrote it for The Advocate, that he hangs that box score up in his locker for the entire year, basically, and tells himself, if I'm in the position to pitch the team to Omaha, I'm not going to let it slip this time. And sure enough, they throw him out there on the mound in game three of a super against South Carolina, and and he gets the job done. So that's a heroic performance, but this was not a team that was carried by one or two big names that you would recognize as big leaguers. And ULL has some big leaguers in their past. It's not like this is a program kind of devoid of that but this was not that type of team. It was a very, very good team, a very talented team, but it wasn't star studded and full of, you know, names that you'll see in in lights now. And I think that's to to go back to the point about why they'd captured imagination. I think that's part of it too, is they fit in that really tough to pull off space between being a juggernaut, which they, they weren't necessarily, but also they weren't, Lucky and just lucky to be there, and we're happy to be there. They could, I mean, in a different scenario, they get to the final here. I mean, that would not have been out of the realm of possibility. So that's really kind of, I think, unique. And I think that's also part of the reason why this team kind of captures the imagination the way they do.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. I wish they, uh you know, it just would have been a lot of fun to see them play LSU. Uh, you know, to, that, that might have broken things. But, you know, Stanford, took care of them twice They they beat them 19 to nine in the the game to to send stanford to, to that final against lsu which becomes a you know pretty classic final in itself that a 2000 uh college world series winds up being just being very memorable for for a, a whole number of reasons but it to to get two teams from the state of louisiana going at it for a, a national championship would have been would have been amazing. Although I don't know if the state of Louisiana could have handled it, I don't know if the fan bases really would could have handled it, uh, or, or frankly, if they really would have wanted it to be that way. I remember, you know, around here a couple years ago, uh, the NCAA basketball tournament bracket set up in such a way that UNC and Duke could have very, very conceivably faced off for the national championship and there was a lot of question of like do you even want that to happen because if it does then uh you know the things are just kind of broken in the rivalry because that just becomes an ultimate like well we did this like we beat you for the national championship and how do you ever come back from that so kind of an interesting you know fan sentiment uh but unfortunately it it did not come to that and the the cajuns story came to an end there in the uh in the semifinals of the College World Series, I, I mentioned I, I want to talk a little bit about San Jose State as well because you know they're like Joe said they're, they're coming at this totally differently. Their their window um, of of being a, a, a premier team is is a lot shorter. You know, ULL today uh, isn't. Operating at quite this level, but you know, with the last five or six years, you can see ULL operating at at the heights of college baseball, and uh, there's every reason to believe, especially with the the renovations to to their ballpark, and uh, you know Matt Deggs, you know, being hired to replace Coach Robe, uh, you know that they're going to continue to to you know pop up into into the national conversation, um, you know, with a fair amount of frequency, but. San Jose State kind of is not that program at all, and, you know, the, them getting to this stage is the true Cinderella story and, and something to, to be celebrated in its own right.
0: No doubt, and let me correct the record just quickly. I said in the kind of the open to this that they made a super regional run in 02. Full disclosure, uh, Wikipedia has that 2002 season labeled incorrectly. Uh, they did get to a regional that season so they were still really good they went 45 and 17 so but they did not get to a super so let me correct that record there but point b i think that actually makes the point even more so is that this really was a a a cinderella run and you know they
2: speaking of that real quickly here sure they've only made the tournament four times and they like 2000 is pretty much the only time they've done anything with it. In, in 1955, they won the first two games in a regional and then lost the next two. And otherwise, they're 0-2 in 71, they're 0-2 in 2002. Like this 2000, you know, they go to Waco and they go to Houston and you know, they find ways to win on the road. And, and it, it's, it, it's very much the outlier in, in San Jose State history.
0: It's also like an interesting alternate history. There are a couple of fan bases of programs who are historically very good but are not perhaps historically great that could be inching closer to historically great had they gotten to Omaha this year that kind of um, ends up upsetting the apple cart San Jose State did. They were in Baylor's regional and they come out of Baylor's regional and, you know, Baylor's a program that does get to Omaha in 05 and, you know, that, that ends up being Um, you know, the crowning achievement of the Steve Smith era there, but that's their one trip. And if they had made two during this time, it kind of changes the complexion of of what they were doing. They have another one, by the way, in 2012,
1: where they, you know, were really, really good and didn't get there. But
0: the other one, though, is San Jose State plays the University of Houston in that super regional at Cougar Field. And the University of Houston during this period of time is perhaps, having not done the full accounting of this, I, I can't say definitively, but they're on the short list of the best programs during a period between like 1999 and 2003, 2004 to not get to Omaha. They get to a super regional three times and they just can never break through. I mean, they they just keep getting to the precipice and they just cannot break through it. They, they number of times get to a third game in a super regional and they just can't do it. And so this was probably their best shot against a team. I think they came into the weekend thinking not taking them lightly, but thinking this is our, this is our chance. So, um, so San Jose State getting to that point, actually, is just like a, a fun alternate history. It's not fun for Baylor or Houston, but it's like an interesting alternate history in what I think we assumed the way that postseason was going to go. Um, it, you look at the, you know, watching this game, they have a couple guys in the middle of the order who like have good numbers, but it really is a, a lineup of guys who are, who don't really have numbers. It's a really unique team. They've got a, you know, they've got a second baseman last name is stream who is five foot three and they tell a story about, he's got this scar on his head. And I guess, you know, he had in the previous season in a, in a batting practice accident, or or I forget the exact details of it, but he gets hit by a stray baseball in his eye and they have to basically split his scalp from ear to ear to repair the eye properly. And so, I mean, there's, there's really interesting stories here, but it's in terms of, like, the guys in the field, like, it really is a, just a scrappy team that I think, you know, was able to to just do enough to get them into Omaha and over the hump. So uh, it's what makes it fun. And beyond that, I mean, they competed pretty well. I mean, they didn't come there. And, I mean, they, they get behind early in their first game in Omaha, and they, but they end up making the score look good. And in this game, they were really there with – with ULL, but just a true, true Cinderella underdog story, unlike few others we've seen in, in the history, in modern history anyway, of the Coggle series.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I don't even know who they're, I mean, I guess you can shout out Stony Brook in, in a similar sense, but I feel like Stony Brook getting there is much more reasonable and logical to, to work through, uh, given where they had been, than san jose state which again had before this 2000 you know run they had not been in the ncaa tournament in almost 30 years it's uh you know they they truly pop up out of out of the blue and, and wind up you know making making this you know very very impressive run and you know, it kind of peters out a little bit after that. Like, yes, they, they they do make it back in 2002, but it's, uh you know, back to the NCAA tournament in 2002, but it's, uh th- there's not been much like this in, in San Jose State's history before and, and absolutely not since.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a, you talk about where programs are now, you, you went down this road a little bit earlier, but, you know, ULL was, A national seat in 14 they hosted I I believe they hosted in in, in 15 or perhaps it was 16 but still very good just a matter of a few years ago and and San Jose State has has just had a lot of trouble really as a member of the Mountain West Conference just really being you know consistent and having any sort of consistency they've really really struggled and uh, it really is just kind of kind of crazy how much the history of San Jose State kind of looks like if you if you were to draw, like, a curve, theirs is less of a, less of, like, a a bell curve and more of a mountain, you know, just, like, a very, very high, high peak with an immediate drop off on, like, either side of it. So, um, just really crazy, really crazy piece of history there. Shout out also on San Jose State uh, for left fielder Rob Douglas, who is rocking a pair of just regular old glasses out there. Not, not like, now, see, now they've got, like, the really fancy, like, Oakley style, like shades that just have prescription lenses instead of dark lenses. Like those have been out for for quite a while now. There was also, of course, at different points, and I've seen this because I've been watching the Last Dance documentary on ESPN. But the Horace Grant goggles with the strap—I mean, those have been around. Chris Sabo, famously former podcast guest, Chris Sabo, famously wore those. But no, this this Rob Douglas guy—he's just wearing a pair of regular old glasses. And and I I'm someone. I mean, that's who the wore- Greg Maddox look, right? Right, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, I'm someone who wore glasses on the baseball field it, it, when I was playing and up, up through high school, and so I, I I felt it deeply when he would stand in the batter's box and he would he would take a pitch and he'd step back out and he'd do, be doing his like between pitches routine, which included a push up of his glasses with his finger. I was like, my man, I totally understand trying to keep those glasses up when your face is sweaty is not an easy thing to do. And they told a, I kind of missed some of the story here, but. I guess he had recently gotten those glasses and they, they make a joke. He goes three for four and he's at 1.3 for three. And, uh, you know, the Harold Reynolds or Mike Patrick, I forget which makes a joke about like, man, if they'd have gotten in those glasses earlier, he might've hit 400 because he really is stinging the ball. So, um, it, it sounded like it was one of those stories where, you know, there were some struggles and they put a pair of glasses on him, and all of a sudden, Oh, that's what the problem was. So, um, so shouts to Rob Douglas and, and his glasses. Cause it certainly made, uh, Made me feel like, you know, uh, the teenage version of Joe was, was not that far from being a college baseball player, at least in that one respect. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so we, we also did want to kind of touch on just the uniqueness of this game in, in terms of the, you know, the, these two programs being underdog programs, being a little bit outside the the traditional power structure of college baseball and and like i mentioned if you really look at the history of the college world series since the format was changed in, in terms of how regionals were were constructed this is not something that happens um pretty much ever since except in this one one instance where where programs like this end up meeting each other on the biggest stage of the sport you might have instances like in 2012 where Kent State and Stony Brook are there together, but they just don't play. And and it is a little different here where you do have these teams on the field together. One of them is guaranteed to move on. Uh, You know, they're not getting eliminated. And, you know, so can this happen again is is the sport just in a in a spot where where it can't happen again? And uh, I know Joe has has thoughts on that, and, and and I do as well. But Joe, just what do you think of that? And, and what do you make of of what that means for for kind of where college baseball is versus where it was twenty years ago?
0: I think the San Jose State piece, I think, could happen again because that's ultimately just a talented team that just got super hot at the right time and or you don't even have to really get that hot I mean you can lose games and regionals and super regionals and still get through it makes it harder but but a team that just started playing its best baseball at the right time I think that part could happen again because it, it does happen the the pieces that seems harder to pull off is to do what ULL was doing in the way that they did it because college baseball still in the in the 90s which is when this all really started for for the Raging Cajuns was still a blank canvas in a lot of ways and we've talked about this a little bit before where it was still a blank canvas in that if you there were fewer programs that were really committed to baseball in terms of facilities or in terms of budgets in terms of taking seriously um you know, doing some of the things you need to do to be successful. There were a lot of programs that were just kind of existing, just to, to put it a fine point on it. So you could be a program like Louisiana Lafayette or Southwestern Louisiana and hire Tony Robichaud, and he's just a, a uniquely qualified coach to get that done. I mean, he had a lot of success in McNeese state before that, so he's, he's in a good position to get it done. He knows the landscape, and you've got this untapped potential that he's able to realize in that program a program that's been brought up several times in this podcast, Rice was in a similar position. They had some unique challenges because of the cost of attendance, the academic piece, all of that, even less history. I mean, they were really nowhere in terms of our program. And because of that blank canvas in college baseball, they were able to build something out of that. And that's the part that I don't know is replicable today because I'm trying to come up with an, an avatar for what this looks like today. Like what's the program that could do a ULL did then and would be kind of a similar trajectory and I can't really come up with that I mean like East Carolina has never been to Omaha but they're too successful like they are universally regarded as the best program to never go to Omaha and if they were to go to Omaha in 2021 like yes they would be first time and first time Omaha participant but their track record of success is almost too good to be the same type of program as what ULL was. ULL was a crowning achievement of what had been a a somewhat lengthy but mostly pretty swift building job. You know, East Carolina has gone through several head coaches, all of whom have had various levels of of success by and large. And then, you know, getting to Omaha would kind of be a capper and they'd finally get over that hump. And I know Cliff Godwin is is all about getting that done because he cares for that program so much. But that, to me, that wouldn't be the same. And so I just don't know what the the modern day version, I don't know that there's a modern day version of a program now in a league that would allow you to do this. Cause that's the other piece. I don't think you can do this from a one bid league because really you're just,
2: this is, you're talking about Indiana,
0: right? Yeah. Yeah. I guess. I I mean, like it's
2: different because the, the big 10 is what it is. And, but you know, I feel like when Indiana did it, the big 10 wasn't that necessarily now. I mean, that's easy to say, but the Big Ten is still the Big Ten, but, you know, and if Iowa did it today, I don't think it would be the same way, but, you know, Indiana kind of ushers in this new era of Big Ten baseball um, in some respects.
0: Yeah, I, that's a good one because, see, that that's a really interesting point too because doing that now, to your point about Iowa, doing that now would not be the same, I don't think. So is it like, Dallas Baptist but even that track record is track record is pretty lengthy at this point so is it Indiana State to keep it in the Hoosier State because the Valley feels like that type of league where I'm not I couldn't tell you exactly what the Sunbelt Conference was like in 1999 and 2000 but I assume it was pretty competitive kind of like it was not long after that before realignment jumbled stuff up but the Valley is a multi bid league more often than not has teams that could conceivably win regionals. Cause that's the the first piece of this now is like, could you see a team winning this team winning a regional? So maybe it's a team from the Valley perhaps. Um, you know, I'm not really sure, but I think that's the, the, this all serves to make the point I'm making, which is, I just don't know. And you and I, you and I have had probably at this point, literal multiple hours of conversation about this exact topic, which JJ Cooper would tell us means we need to write about it. But I just don't know. In, in t- fairness
2: to that, it was on the schedule before
0: coronavirus happened. True, that is true. So we're getting to it, is what we're saying. So again, don't steal that idea either. Um, but but yeah, I just so in 2020 or 2021, college baseball. I, I don't know. I just don't know that what they did then is is replicated in this. It could be replicated in the same way. And of course, I say that until it happens, right? I mean, like the other the other side of this argument is that none of this stuff really feels possible until it happens. If you'd asked somebody in 1993, hey, 10 years from now, is Rice going to win a national title in baseball? They, they would have laughed at you. It would have been right to do so. So that's the other piece of this is, yes, there are trends in college baseball. And right now the trend is away from mid-major programs. And I, and I don't know if that ever shifts fully back, but things ebb and flow. And so will this happen again? Probably, if you give it enough time. But is it as easily done? And will we see examples of ULL does this, and then Rice does this, and to a certain degree, I think sometimes this gets forgotten, Southern Mist gets to Omaha in 09. Um, programs have done this, and there were a decent number of them in rapid succession. And I just don't know that we see, I don't know that the, the conditions are such that we could see something like that again. So will it happen again? Probably. Will we see it coming? No. And could it happen as in rapid succession as it used to? Probably not.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that it's definitely going to be rarer going forward. But I think that, you know, again, Indiana's an iffy example because of their situation in the Big Ten. And the Big Ten, as long as it was not paying very good attention to college baseball, was a sleeping giant. And I think you're seeing why it's a sleeping giant. Uh, you know, despite all of the the various factors that work against Big Ten schools, they're still Big Ten schools, and they're still the biggest schools in in states that have a lot of population. Uh, you know, at least if we're talking about Illinois and Indiana and uh, Ohio State and uh, or Ohio rather and, and and Michigan, you know, these are these are big time schools in big states that carry a lot of weight if if they decide to to throw their weight behind baseball which they now are but i think also ucsb is not that far off from this that you know that's a team that hosted in 2015 gets to omaha in 2016 was kind of on the bubble of hosting for a lot of 19 um as things were setting up this year, it was kind of looking like well maybe they're going to be a fringe top twenty five team maybe they are a top twenty five team I think that's how we're looking at the gauchos going into twenty one um so I think they're they're kind of similar to that now we can talk about like is the big west just a too too big for this to to be a thing um you know, I don't know. I don't think it is anymore. That's kind of
0: the funny thing about it, is I think if we had this conversation 10 years ago, we'd go, yeah, probably. But now the Midwest is in a place where I think it's actually back on the board as a possibility.
2: Sure. And and I think that Dallas Baptist, when they get to Omaha, it is going to be seen as a breakthrough, but I think it may be seen more as a breakthrough akin to what Coastal did, that like it was coming for so long. And I'm not saying that the first time TBU gets to Omaha, they win the national title. But when Coastal got there in 16, not so much the way we look at it now, but the, when it happened, it was a little bit more like, Oh, okay. So Coastal finally did this and like, welcome to the club. And, and I think that might be a little more what DBU is, but you know, I, I think there is still a chance to, to be the kind of program building, to have the kind of program building that, that ULL did at, at the at the turn of the century, and you know, I I actually find it maybe a little less likely that we see teams like San Jose State pop up. You know, we it, it's not that long ago that, that we saw you know some teams like that. You know, VCU was at a super regional not so long ago, and uh, you know, that's just you know you, one more step to make it to Omaha. Davidson, obviously, uh, you know, famously upsets North Carolina, but you know, those teams have not fared so well in super regionals. And I just feel like in today's world, to be a four seed or even a three, like, uh, you know, not, not so much a, a bubble three, like a Michigan or a Duke last year, but to be a auto bid three and go through the two weekends, it's just, it's very, very hard to, to do that on the road. In, in today's environment, and, and to do the you know just it's two weekends it's you know six seven games whatever however many you you end up playing against elite competition and I find that to be maybe the harder thing to pull off to to be someone as as fully off the map as San Jose State uh, to to go out and do that and you know I, I know that San Jose State team individually was good uh, but for, for a a program that, that traditionally has not been that kind of program to put together a team like that, you know, that's, I, I find that to be maybe the harder thing to do in, in today's landscape. And, you know, obviously the program building is, is very difficult to to pull off, but I think we can find examples of that at least in the last 10 years. I, you know, outside of Stony Brook, I don't know who your example of that would be, um, you know, and even again, Stony Brook is a little different because that team was and is one of the the powerhouses of the America East Conference, which means that they end up in the NCAA tournament with a fair amount of regularity. And you know, it, if you keep having those kinds of experiences, you know, it eventually it doesn't take a whole lot to um, a whole lot of, of of imagination to to believe that you can you know win a regional. And then, you know, have have what it takes to to go on the road and win a super and, and to have you know the talent because you're you're developing players or you're you're getting you know lucky in recruiting or, or you're just doing a really good job at identifying talent. Like that that all seems like it's just very difficult to pull off uh if you're living so far outside the power structure. And I don't know whether the current environment that we're in makes that harder or not, but, you know, especially right now, if you're going to be doing it on less scholarships, Davidson figured out how to, how to go out and win a regional, but, you know, there's that whole next step that, that becomes very difficult having to compete head to head, uh, you know, with so much pressure on the road for a trip to Omaha winning two out of three games. I mean, that's, that's a big ask. I feel like.
0: Yeah. Maybe it's one of those deals where like a statistical modeler would tell us that, well, it kind of depends because, you know, the, the, the year to year Cinderella thing, you have more shots at it because every year there's 16, four seeds that are going to have a bite at the apple. Right. And so like you are kind of getting 16 lottery tickets. And that the building thing takes time and you're talking about a smaller number of places. So it's, it's like in the abstract, y- you might look at the, 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 the four seed thing as being more common because you get those every single year. Like I don't, most people don't know this, but you have to put 64 teams into the NCAA tournament baseball bracket, shouts to Gary Parish. So That's true, you do. So like people don't know that, but you do. So every year there are 16 four seats and 16 three seats. So you get a whole bunch of bites at the apple on that. Of course, most of those lottery tickets come up empty, but so there's that piece of it. But then to your point, I, I agree with you to your point, there's all, there are always programs building under the surface. And and sometimes we get to see the fruits of, of that labor. And sometimes we, we don't because things just don't work out. So um, it's an interesting debate. And I don't know that, you know, obviously we get to see it play out, which is the fun part because these things are all, we get to see the results, um, but in in some respects, we'll uh, it's just impossible to know until we see it play out. So it's a a fun debate to have that plays out in slow motion over a number of years.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, these things elements change. You know, if um, if we we wind up changing the the regional format and the NCAA decides to adopt the plan, uh, being supported by by some or the idea i shouldn't say plan that that kind of implies that it's a proposal out there but the idea that uh you should ha- have an extra round so instead of regionals everyone plays best of three series all the way through you know maybe that makes it easier for for one one type of of this you know underdog team than the other um, my guess is that would make it easier a little bit easier for the the, the program building team um but you know that as things ebb and flow and and, and change in, in terms of structure of of college baseball you know you you see different kinds of things but th- this specific game in the 2000 college world series is kind of you know uh i mean it's certainly a unique moment and, and it's well, while it's not singular, it, it is something that, that you cannot expect to come, on, come along very often, even when you get multiple teams in, you know, making debuts, breaking through as Cinderella's uh, in one year. They, to, to have them be matched up, it, it doesn't happen often. And, and so I, I, that is uh, one of the cool elements that the 2000 College World Series provided and, and that we were able to see um, you know, in this particular
0: game. Yeah, my, I guess my final thought is is we talked about how much fun this team was, and there were a lot of things that played into that. Some of it was the style of play for sure. Some of it was the the, the blonde hair, and, and we got a, a package in this game that, that showed actual footage of the guys going to that, which that's something that I feel like we don't see much anymore in like these, these College World Series games, and I guess part of it is just because it's now – the CWS is so much of a bigger deal in terms of how it's blown out coverage wise. So maybe there's just not that opportunity, but we actually got a full blown like package of a camera following UL baseball players to the store to buy the dye and then going into their hotel room to dye each other's hair. It was kind of a fun little deal. And so there's, that was part of it. And then I think the other thing is that this program was kind of a, a sleeping giant in terms of not just, what they could accomplish on the field, but also it's a fan base that really, really cares in a state that really, really cares about college baseball. So I think it was a sleeping giant in that regard as well. I mean, the park they have now, Russo, doesn't exist. Even if they go to the CWS, it probably doesn't exist if there wasn't the demand for that and the fan demand, but they draw really well. Those fans really, really care. And I think that's part of what made it special too, is you just knew this was this fan base getting to do this, you know this fun thing, and all go to Omaha and cheer their team on, or watch from home. Or I'm sure there were all kinds of parties all over that part of the country to celebrate their team getting there. And I think that's part of what made it fun too.
2: Absolutely, it was uh, it was a fun one to look back on, and uh, I'm glad we were we were able to spend some time on it uh, as we uh, as we dig through the archives uh, in this very very strange spring. So we'll be back here next week with uh, another game. To, to re-watch another trip down memory lane to take. Or, uh, we're still kind of organizing our thoughts uh, as to, to which, which game that'll be. So look for if – you're, if you're interested in watching the game beforehand, I would, I would recommend tuning into our first podcast of next week, which will be released on Tuesday, or uh, checking us out on social media. I am at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy B-A. If you're looking for more of the Baseball America College podcast, make sure you're subscribed in your favorite podcasting app, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you're getting your podcasts, you can find the Baseball America podcast. So please, uh, please subscribe, please rate, please review. Uh, We appreciate all of that. Uh, When you guys, uh, you know, let us let us know uh, you're listening out there. We, we, We love to hear that. You can find plenty more content over on the website, baseballamerica.com. There's a lot of college content, a lot of draft content, a lot of stuff to take you through, um, you know, this spring and and uh, into June. We, we've we've got a lot uh, going on in the lead up to the draft, and of course, uh, you know, continuing to cover the college game and and the news and, and everything that that comes out of you know the this very very strange spring. So make sure to check that out as well if you are so inclined. I want to thank Coach Babineau again for joining us here on the Baseball America College podcast. Thank you to Joe. Thank you all for listening. I've been Teddy Cahill. We'll see you next time.